Thank you, worship team, and thank you for joining us, either here or somewhere behind that camera. And take your Bibles, as we always do. We're beginning to study a new book this morning, so take your Bibles and turn with me to 2 Ephesians. 2 Ephesians, and if you're having trouble finding that, we also call it 1 Timothy. The, uh, the reason we could almost call it 2 Ephesians is that this book is written to the same location. Because our book of Ephesians uh, was written, of course, to the whole church at Ephesus. But this book was written to Timothy, who was leading the church at Ephesus, just a couple of years after the book of Ephesians was written. So 1 Timothy chapter 1, looking at the first seven verses today, and I'd like us to have a little bit of a quick geographical overview, really, of the entire New Testament uh, era, the development of the church, so that we can see where 1 Timothy fits into that context. So, uh, kind of follow this, we're, we're covering a, a strong decade uh, in, in just a couple of minutes here. But the church, of course, begins in Jerusalem because that is where Jesus and his ministry, his death and resurrection and ascension took place. That little vertical rectangle there, uh, Jesus spent his entire life uh, on earth in, in that uh, area of Israel. But then, of course, his command was that the gospel should go to all nations. Part of that plan in, in God's heart was that it would take persecution for that gospel to go. And so because of the persecution that we find in the book of Acts, the gospel went to places like Antioch, where a substantial church developed that became really the sending place of the future missionary journeys of Paul. And so then Paul uh, takes off on three missionary journeys, plus later a trip to Rome as a prisoner. And so let's just summarize that. Uh, on the first journey, he didn't get that terribly far away, but visited a number of churches. I've highlighted Lystra because this is where Timothy is from. This is where Timothy uh, grew up. Though he's not mentioned on the first journey, uh, we meet him in the second. But evidently, Timothy came to faith in Christ under the ministry of Paul there at Lystra on the first journey, because after Paul goes back to Antioch and then starts the second journey, he comes back visiting in Lystra, and it says there's a disciple named Timothy, and, and Timothy had grown so much spiritually that he becomes, Paul invites him, and Timothy joins Paul as a helper, later as a, a partner, and we find him, of course, in First Timothy later on. So, Timothy begins to travel with Paul on that second journey, and they stop briefly at Ephesus, Timothy and Paul, uh, on that journey. They also go all the way around the Aegean Sea to uh, Corinth and other churches, planting churches. And then on the way back on this uh, second, oh, sorry, second journey, they go back to Antioch. On the third journey, though, they stop at Ephesus for a long time. And Acts tells us how that uh, Paul spent over two years just in Ephesus. There's no other city like it. But it became really a teaching center for the gospel. For example, last summer when we, we were studying in the book of Colossians, Paul never visited or planted the church in Colossae, but a man named Epaphras from Colossae, which on your map is located a little between Ephesus and Lystra, 
Epaphras must have come to Ephesus, heard the gospel, or at least was trained in the, the scriptures to go back and plant the church at Colossae. So Ephesus was a very substantial and important church for the proclamation of the gospel. And so Timothy would have been well acquainted with it. So he spent substantial time there on the third journey, revisits the churches all the way around to Corinth. And on the way back, Paul doesn't take time to actually stick, go visit Ephesus again, but he does send for the elders. And this is important to our study. He sends for the elders at the church of Ephesus, and he has a message for them on the third journey. He tells them, keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he brought, bought with his own blood. I know, Paul says, that after I leave, this is prophecy, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number within the church, that is, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw disciples after them. This is an ominous warning that will make sense as we open 1 Timothy so he tells them this on that, at the end of that third journey. Paul returns to Antioch. Actually, he returns to Jerusalem. There in Jerusalem, he is arrested. He is taken to Rome for the first Roman imprisonment of Paul. And from Paul, he writes, from Rome, Paul writes several letters, one of which is Ephesians. Some of you may know that Ephesians 6 is where Paul describes what spiritual battle really is. And the way we do spiritual battle, he says, is that you need the belt of truth. And the last thing he mentioned, well, second last, was you need the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And then pray at all times. So he knew that he, the people in Ephesus were going to need to be strong in the Word of God. He knew prophetically there was going to be false teachers. And so now as we come to 1 Timothy, the time has arrived and the false teaching was a reality. It was nine years approximately after he had warned in the third journey that there would be false teachers. It is two years approximately when he has written Ephesians and said, you need the belt of truth and the sword of the Spirit. Now there is false teaching. We will see later in verse 3 and following. So how would the church be able to deal with false teaching? Would they recover it's interesting that Paul doesn't go there personally to address false teaching. He entrusts it to Timothy. Because by this time, Timothy has been working with Paul, trained, mentored, discipled by Paul for some 12 years. And Paul says, Timothy, you're ready. And I want you to be the one to go and address the false teaching at this important church, a good church otherwise, of Ephesus. In the books of Timothy, two books of Timothy, first and second, we find some things out about him personally. We find that he is young, still young, even at this point, probably in his mid to upper 30s. He's young, he seems to be known as timid, and he has frequent health issues. Put that on your resume. I'm young, I'm timid, and I have frequent health issues. Can I come be your pastor? Because you really need a strong guy. But here's the thing. Ephesus did not need a strong leader. They needed a leader strongly committed to the Word of God. That's the difference. Because the power in any place where God's Word is, is held 
is not in the person. The power is in the Word of God. And if, if we, as God's people, are strongly committed to the Word of God, we have all the power we'll ever need. Because it's His power and not ours. So the book we start today calls that church, this church, any of us individually, to be forever committed to the truth of God's Word. That's where our strength is. The truth of God's Word, but, he's very careful to point out, with the goal of love. Truth, love. Or as Paul would tell the Ephesians, speaking the truth in love. The greeting, verses 1 and 2, tells us a lot about Paul and uh, implies some of the story of Timothy as well. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our Lord, or rather our hope, to Timothy, my true son in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. A very typical sounding letter if you've read some of uh, other Paul's epistles. He identifies himself, as always, as an apostle. An apostle simply means one who is sent. And who sent him? Christ Jesus, first of all, sent him. In Acts 9, we hear the story of the account of how Paul came to faith in Christ. He was actually persecuting Christians when the risen, ascended Jesus Christ appeared to him in blazing glory blinding him, saving him. His sight is restored in the town of Damascus when Ananias both says, receive your sight, and then says, as prophecy, God has chosen you, Paul, to take the gospel to the Gentiles. So he was sent. He knew that this was a direct sending of Jesus Christ saying, Paul, you're the guy to go take the gospel to these places. But Paul adds here, something that's not found in some of the other epistles, by the command of God our Savior. It's like he's really emphasizing in this book that addresses so much false teaching, I want you to know I'm sent by Christ, and it's the command of God himself. So what is written here, Timothy, he's saying, this is Christ, this is God speaking. Last week as we finished our study of Ecclesiastes, we saw that Solomon said that these were words given by one shepherd. He knew he was directly inspired. Here, this is Paul's way of making a clear statement that God has authorized all of this truth. There is, as we know, very little confidence in the word truth uh, today. Not only in the last year, but really throughout all, I'd say, political seasons. Um, There are radically different viewpoints, all claiming truth and claiming the other side to be lies. It's like you get to eavesdrop on any argument in the world and say, here's two sides, each deeply disagreeing on what is fact. In that environment, don't be surprised in our culture that non-Christians view the Bible as our opinions. No matter how much we say this is truth, well, that's, that's what the Bible says, that's what you think, or that's what you think the Bible says. The question is not what the world thinks. The question is, what do you think? As you come to this book, do you accept it as absolute truth? Many Christians would quickly say, yes, I I believe this this is God's truth. But there's a little bit of an asterisk that says, as long as I agree with it. Um... We are always thinking through the filter of what we want to believe, 
Can we be humble enough and honest enough to say that? Uh, we tend to pick and choose. We would like God to agree with us instead of us coming with humility and say, here's what God says, do I agree with him? So Paul is claiming God's authority. So either Paul is lying, which makes him a very not nice man, or this really is God's word. Does that mean that we always know exactly what God's word means or how to apply it? No, that, that's an ongoing challenge. But this, Paul is claiming to be God's mouthpiece. This is God's pen. He's writing to Timothy, he calls my true son in the faith, a spiritual father to Timothy. And that's exactly what the, what the account of Acts uh, bears out. Acts 14 is a story of Paul's visit to Lystra on that first missionary journey. It's a rather remarkable uh, event. He comes with Barnabas and preaching about Jesus Christ. It's, all, it's, it's new stuff to them to hear about Christ. And it's so impressive initially that people of Lystra begin to worship them as gods. And they say, no, no, don't worship us. Then some people arrive from the last place where Paul had Barnabas again and, and slander them. And the whole crowd turns, and you know what they do? They stone him and leave him for dead. That's how fast and how fickle people are. So what happens is that he's left for dead, and then it says Paul gets up and goes to the next city. So either he truly died and God raised him from the dead, or else he was deeply injured and thought to be dead, and God healed him so he can get up and keep going. Remarkable story. So Timothy is from Lystra. He's probably in his early 20s. He sees, he knows, he hears that, though he's not mentioned in that first trip. But a year later or so, Paul makes a second visit, Paul and Silas now, and they come to Lystra. Let's just read this. Paul also came to Derbe and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek, so non-Jewish and implied not a believer. He was well spoken of, Timothy was, by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. And Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him. It's only been a strong year, perhaps, since the gospel had come to Lystra, but Timothy had grown spiritually to a point where everybody at the church in Ephesus knew God's hand was on this young man. And so for this, from this point on, young Timothy becomes a, a helper and then eventually a You'd have to call him a partner and colleague of Paul. Timothy's my true son in the faith. We also know a little bit more about his family from some personal references in 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy 1.5, Paul tells him, I'm reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that first dwelt in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I'm sure dwells in you as well. Of course, dad's name isn't mentioned. That's not where the sincere faith was. But it's, a, it's an encouragement to every mom and grandma, I think, of the impact you can have on your kids and your grandkids when your faith is sincere. And then later on in 2 Timothy, he makes this comment to Timothy, from childhood you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith which is, is, which is in Christ Jesus. So, of course, the sacred writings there that Timothy grew up with were the Old Testament scriptures, 
And so he had godly believing mother and grandmother teaching him the Old Testament scripture. So his heart was ready when the gospel came to Lystra and he believed and matured, really you could say very, very quickly to a place where God could use him as a partner with, with Paul. And it reminds us of the importance of teaching the word of God to our kids. We are, we are building a, a, a fountain of truth within them that whether they accept it immediately, whether they come to places in their life that they doubt it, but it is there. And so whether you're thinking as a parent or whether we're, we're thinking of the, the next gen project and the kind of ministries that we have at the church that are, are, are targeted towards teaching the word of God to our young people on Sundays or Wednesday nights, there's a purpose for that because it is that scripture that can give them the wisdom leading to salvation, maybe at another time leading to growth some point in their life. It's that important because this is God's word. And that's what they so deeply need. To Timothy, my true son in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Again, it's a typical greeting of Paul, but nothing to yawn at. These are blessings that, of salvation that stood out so strong to Paul that he mentions them in every letter he writes at the beginning. Specifically, grace and peace are mentioned in every one of Paul's letters. Grace, of course, means that we receive salvation as a gift without any merit on our own. We receive salvation because Christ paid it all on the cross. And when we put our faith in Christ, he gives us eternal life. We don't have to climb some ladder of qualification. Grace means salvation is free. Peace Peace means that we are forgiven. Peace means that the, the conflict that should be between a holy God and a sinful human being is gone. The conflict is resolved because Christ paid for your sins. So positionally, you are as forgiven as you will ever be. Though you're not done sinning in this life, right? You are forgiven as you will ever be. There is no conflict between you and God. Mercy. Paul mentions mercy only in First and Second Timothy in the greeting. So he gets like the trifecta of salvation blessings. Again, mercy can be a, a salvation term because mercy means you don't get what you do deserve. We've, we, we deserve eternal punishment and we're free from that. Some have thought perhaps he put the word mercy in for Timothy because it was one of those classic Old Testament terms that spoke of God helping those in feeling desperate need. God helping those who are helpless. And perhaps Timothy would feel that way as, Tim, as Paul is calling on him to confront difficult, troublemaking, false teachers. You will need God's mercy and he will be merciful to you. As we come to verse 3, Paul gets to the point of his letter very fast. In fact, if you've read a lot of Paul's epistles, you may know that he often starts out with things like thanking God for them and affirming your love and your, your faith or something like that. He doesn't do this. This is a leader-to-leader -leader correspondence, and he jumps right into a description. Timothy, this is what I'm asking you to do. Verse 3. 
As I urged you, when I went into Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus. You're my, you're my guy. So that you may command certain men not to teach false doctrines any longer, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. These promote controversies rather than God's work. You may have the word stewardship, which is by faith. The goal of this command is love, which comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Timothy, you must address the false teaching in Ephesus for the sake of the gospel, God's work, and for the sake of love. Paul was not writing because he was angry at certain peoples, though he actually names some names. He was writing to this church because he was concerned that this effective church might become a useless church. He's already talked to Timothy about this, as I urged you when I was moving on. I've, I've told, told you this verbally, but I'm, I'm putting it in print for you. So you'll have this letter to know this is what I've given you to do. As I urged you, I went to Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus. If you can recall briefly the, the map we looked at a few moments ago. Paul on those second and third journeys was establishing churches up and over the Aegean Sea, places like Troas, Philippi, Thessalonians. You recognize some of those from New Testament books. So Paul had a lot of churches for which he felt responsible, and he couldn't get to all of them or give them the time, so he entrusts Ephesus to Timothy, kind of an interim pastor of sorts. Here's your job. Command certain men not to teach false doctrine any longer. This word doctrine or teaching is, is, is what's... It, it, it describes the body of truth that Jesus and the apostles were presenting, the New Testament, okay? Only now this word teaching has a little prefix in front of it that says other teaching. So many times in the New Testament, what the apostles and Jesus taught is called the teaching. This is other teaching, different teaching, false teaching. It could be translated any of those ways. We're not positive what the differences all were. It actually doesn't say that they added anything to salvation like was found clearly in some other cities, though they could have. Specifically, what it mentions here is not what they added to salvation, but probably what they added to the Old Testament. Because that was the written scriptures that they had. They added what? They added myths and endless genealogies, things that provoke and promote controversies. Interesting. They, they were devoted to distractions. Bible scholar John Stott writes that they were speculators who treated the Old Testament as a happy hunting ground for their speculations. The reference to genealogies is interesting because if you've read the Old Testament at different times, you kind of get bogged down and you come to a genealogy, so-and-so is a father, so-and-so is a father, so-and-so, and you kind of get, skim past that. And I understand, I do the same thing because we don't know those people. But some of these teachers, what seems to have happened is that they didn't really know all these names either. It's hundreds of years before, right? 
And so they were picking names out of some of those genealogies, it seems, and creating myths about those people. Think about this. If it's in the Word of God, so you can say, oh, here's the name. This is in the Word of God. This is what he could have been like. And then they spin a tale about that person. It becomes a platform to teach absolutely anything they want to. If you're making up stories, you can make them to be anything you want it to be and launch your own agenda. That never happens now with the Word of God, does it? Or someone like you would take a, take a passage out of Scripture and teach something that really is quite foreign to the doctrine of Scripture. I think one of the examples of something that happens too frequently is the study of Bible prophecy, frankly. Last year we were studying Bible prophecy and we wanted to go right to the passages. What do we actually know from these passages? But you may have heard Bible teaching from prophecy that seems to go a bit farther. And it's like they can, they can predict the future. This is what's going to happen. There have been books written about dates that Christ is going to return or, or like there's people that have this absolute certainty that this person or this event in the news is this. And, and indeed, we see things happening in our day that does describe the process or the progress towards Christ's return, the progress towards perhaps, you know, uh, the, the things that will happen in the tribulation. It, it's, it's truly possible. But do we try to say too much through the centuries so many world leaders have been identified as the antichrist i understand historically that there were there were times when the um, uh, like caesar was considered antichrist there were times when napoleon was in more recent history uh, stalin or hitler surely they were the antichrist or even uh, more recently different political figures in the united states i remember in the 1970s when Henry Kissinger was identified by many, including many Christians, as probably the Antichrist. Anybody remember that? Is that, is that familiar to anybody? There was, um, I looked it up this week, and, and uh, the reason for this is there were some Christians who, who were so concerned about his, his international power, because he was a brilliant man and, and, and working in, in high-up government positions, and so they took his name, Kissinger, put it in Greek letters and assign numeric values as if it's some kind of a code and add it all up and guess what it came to? 666, the number of the Antichrist. And uh, actually, Henry Kissinger is still living, if I understand it right, but he's 98 and unlikely to take over the world anytime soon. There was a book in the late 90s called The Bible Code, written actually by a purported atheist. But he claimed that... Uh, by computer analysis, he was searching Hebrew words in the Old Testament that had predicted accurately the dates of the atomic bombs, the moon landing, Kennedy assassination, even the election of Bill Clinton. He sold many books. He wrote a sequel, became very wealthy. Many Christians going, oh, wow. The Bible, it's all things that had already happened. So the Bible is going to do... He did predict, actually, something that was supposed to happen in 2005, like we don't have much time, the world is going to end in some, some terrible catastrophe. The concern is that Christians who engage and embrace these kind of theories 
I guarantee you are distracted from growing in their own holiness before a holy God. I guarantee you they are not, they are not anxious about pursuing the gospel, making disciples, serving one another. You see, one of the key tactics of Satan, if he can't get you to deny truth, is to distract you from the truth. Where something else becomes so interesting, so fascinating, so appealing, that now we, we go there. And then, and then we, if, we, if we say we believe the Bible, we'll go to the Bible and say, I think this supports me. Instead of what does the Bible frankly tell me about what, what God says? And so my concern, as Paul was for the church in Ephesus, my concern for Open Door, not just that we keep teaching truth, but we not be distracted by other things. Bible speculations, conspiracy theories, any other issues, debates going on in our society that can become way too important. Because what it does, these controversies, verse 4, is it obscures and distracts us from God's work. These, verse 4, these promote controversies rather than God's work, which is by faith. Uh, the, the literal term is a term that is best translated a stewardship from God. A stewardship. What does Paul mean that these controversies and debates are distracting us from the stewardship which is by faith. The best way to find out what Paul means here, I think, is when he used the same word two years earlier, writing also to the church in Ephesus, when he said, for this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, if indeed you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace, which was given to me for you. And he goes on to explain how God had called him to present the, the, the good news of Jesus Christ to Jew and Gentile who are one in the body of Christ, he says, that's, our, that's my responsibility. And so what Paul is pointing out to Timothy here is, this is our corporate responsibility. This is our job. The church is responsible to preserve and communicate the truth of the gospel of the grace of Christ, Jesus Christ, and that's what we'll be held accountable for. So let's make sure we focus on the right thing. We've been given one job to present God's truth. And then he says, which is by faith. And as we hopefully know that the gospel is most obscured when we fail to realize that the way a person can have eternal life is by faith in Christ who died and rose again. And so you can have all kinds of religion and all kinds of, uh, whether they have a cross on it or not, and it's pretty much useless unless that core truth of knowing that what Christ accomplished on the cross was to purchase your salvation, and the only way you can have it is by putting your faith in Jesus Christ and nothing else. So these core things are what we're supposed to be focusing on, and Paul is telling Timothy the Ephesian church is getting distracted from that. If Open Door Bible Church is blessed, and I think we are, the only reason it makes sense to me is if we keep, if God is using us to keep our focus on the main thing. 
go and make disciples. We call it, our purpose, we call RBI. R stands for reaching people with the gospel. We've got to get this message of salvation to people who are not yet believers in Christ. Reaching them with the gospel, then helping to grow them. We call it B, building, reaching, building. And as we build them up in their faith, that's what we're here for today for the most part. Reaching and building them up in their faith. Why? So I involved, so they can be involved in doing what? Reaching more people to the gospel, building them in their faith, involving others. That is our one job. Corporately. And take it personally. This is what God calls us to do. So Paul is very concerned about everything that would be distracting from teaching the truth. But now he connects this to the fact that our goal must be love. The goal of this command, verse 5, the goal of this command is love, which comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Paul knows that he has jumped into the deep end, if you will, urging Timothy, your job there is to confront these false teachers. And Paul knows that an occupational hazard, if you confront someone, is that they will say or think, that's not very loving. Paul's going to name names. Last verse of chapter 1, you'll see the names Hymenaeus and Alexander. Those are people they knew. They were part of the church. When you confront people, Timothy, you're going to name names? I mean, Paul, you're naming names? That's so unloving. But that's where Paul says, no, actually, it's the most loving thing I can do because unless we address these divisive people, they are going to split, divide the church in such a way that we won't love one another. We'll be, we'll be at each other. We'll be in turmoil. But if we can restore unity around the truth, there will actually be love for one another. So the reasons he's shown us that we must focus on the truth of God's word is, A, that's the only way we will accomplish our purpose, the stewardship of God's grace, but B, it's the only way we will actually be loving one another. The truth of God's word has to be central to accomplish our purpose spiritually as well as to accomplish God's goal relationally. A love for one another. Because that's what the world is going to see. Jesus said, by this you, all men will know if you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. That's how they'll know. But if people are taking sides on worthless disputes and they see us hurling insults at each other, they're not going to say, oh, I'm going to be a part of that. And so Paul says, we've got to address the divisive teaching. It's got to stop. Paul kind of dissects his own motive when he says, the goal of this command is love which comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. The pure heart is Paul expressing how we we teach truth. Not, not from a bully pulpit, but we preach truth out of a heart of, I care about you. And then the sincere, a good conscience rather, is while it's a pure heart relationally, it is vertically a good conscience. In other words, this, this is God who is leading me to, to confront these false ideas. And a pure heart plus a good conscience equals a sincere faith. That, that's what sincerity and genuineness is all about. Because I love you, 
you need, I need to present this truth. So Timothy, do that on my behalf. If you don't, verse 6 and 7, now review what he's already warned of because it's already happening. Some have wandered away from these and turned to meaningless talk. I, I bet you they didn't even realize it, but they wandered away. They want to be teachers of the law, but they do not know what they are talking about or what they so confidently affirmed. Did, in other words, did they actually, they actually believed what they were teaching that was false. They become so wrapped up in it. We become so self-deceived. Some have wandered away. Hymenaeus and Alexander were known, verse 20. Maybe the thought was, surely they wouldn't mislead us. I mean, we know these guys. Some have wondered if some of these so-called teachers in verses 6 and 7 were actually elders at the church at Ephesus. And is that why Paul, in chapter 3, gives the qualifications for elders because there's going to be some, some, uh, some men who are going to need to replace others who are doing false teaching. They want to be teachers of the law, but they don't know what they're talking about. This is a fulfillment of that prophecy, was it, nine years earlier when he says there are going to be savage wolves coming from among you who will be trying to get people to come after and follow them. You can almost envision kind of little cliques of people meeting together, home Bible study groups or something that were now going awry. They weren't part of the, of the whole, but they were doing their own thing, teaching their little speculative ideas from the Old Testament because they weren't unified around truth. We have a doctrinal statement as a church, as you know, statement of faith, or online you can see the what we believe and in some senses, it really is more uh, specific than some other churches. And, and I, I uh, truly respect why some churches are maybe more general. We, our church founders spelled out a few more things. But Paul is basically telling Timothy, we need to spell out what is not true because there are too many things that can divide people if we don't know what we're united around. And when there is more unity of doctrine, there is more unity of purpose and more love for one another. If I could make a tiny promotion for the welcome class starting Wednesday night, 6.30 in the other building. Um, one of the main things we do in those six or seven weeks is go through our doctrinal statement. We want you to know what we believe and, and basically what we have agreed to agree on. Understanding there are some things that are, are less clear or even less important. But these are the things that we have agreed to agree on for the greater effectiveness in our purpose, greater unity and love among us. The goal of this truth is love. If truth is lacking, love will be too. The attitude or spiritual state of these teachers is pretty clear in verse 7. There's a pride issue. They don't know what they're talking about or what they so confidently affirm. The emphasis has been on the teachers, the false teachers, but I have to be thinking about the people who are following them. And I think the question we have to ask ourselves is, are we personally susceptible 
to untrue or false teaching. If we, if we hear, you know, a podcast and it's a real winsome person to us as things that, yeah, that's, that's good. And, and they, they, they quote scripture. Well, obviously, if they're nice, interesting people that quote scripture, it must be true, right? Kind of like if it's on the internet, it must be true. <laughs> so if you're listening to a speaker or you're reading something, that appeals to you, do you have the discernment to ask yourself, why do I like this? Are they ideas that we simply want to be true? Because we have to have the humility to say, we can find in Scripture what we want to find. So what kind of teaching attracts you? What do you wish or hope God's word would say or promise? What do you hope God agrees with you on? Do you see see red flags here? That's what he's calling us to, to, to evaluate. If our goal is going to be making disciples and loving with one another from a pure heart, it has to be based on a foundation of truth. So I just want to kind of close with some self evaluation questions. And encourage you to take a deep breath and let kind of the Holy Spirit soften your heart and say, Lord, is is any of this me? Okay? This is a list of possible areas. It's just a starter list. Of ideas that could seem biblical to us because we frankly want them to be. One might be what we mentioned before, prophecy. Ah, you know, it's so interesting. It's claiming specific things and suddenly I'm in the know and I know things other people don't. Just see the appeal to pride and I know what's actually going to happen. Are we taking that too far? The idea of prosperity, you read something, you go, you know, I I just want to get more financial security. And and these scriptures seem to say that you can kind of manipulate God on that. If you do this, you get that. And... So we start to read it through those eyes. How can I get what I want from God? And then, if God doesn't come through, then it's God's fault. We don't think about God's sovereignty in this thing. We actually think that we were supposed to be able to manipulate him to do what we wanted to. Rules is a tempting one. (laughs) We, We have certain standards that we think Christians should always be this way. And then you hear someone maybe preaching some passage, and they apply it to exactly the thing that is our hot button, that I think Christians should be doing. It's not one of these absolute type of things. It's kind of like an application that we just wish everybody did. And we get into that legalistic thinking. Politics, obviously. Do we read, are we attracted to, to ideas that we might find in Scripture that, that defends political positions I already hold? See, he, see, the Bible says. Now, of course, there are certain moral absolutes in Scripture that do correspond to things that are on a platform. Understand that. But do we try to make the Bible say kind of like everything that we like to agree with politically? Traditions. <laughs> it appeals to us if, there's, if we hear some teaching that supports a comfortable tradition. Oh, that's how I always wish church would be. That's how I always wish you know, because we're attracted to our, our backgrounds. And, or sometimes we, there's people who just, they like something new. 
Ooh, that's new. Shiny. <laughs> Here's some shiny truth. This is different. I like that. Or here's a bottom line, self. Do ideas seem biblical because, frankly, it just appeals to something in my sinful nature? That'll catch us every time. Do, do we have that sensitivity of the Spirit to recognize when actually it is sin that is motivating my viewpoints? Are we aware of the red flags we sometimes ignore when we come to the Word of God. Three questions. You come across an idea, is it new? Now, really, have other godly Bible students never known this? I remember some wise professors in seminaries saying, as we're all trying to learn how to study Scripture and interpret Scripture, he says, if you find something that you can find that no one else has ever thought of, be very, very doubtful. That you suddenly have come up with the truth 2,000 years after Jesus. Is it new? But is it true? Is it true or does it just fit an issue that I am personally passionate about for all kinds of reasons? Is it new? Is it true? Is it loving? Does teaching promoting this draw people together around honoring Jesus Christ? Does it point to Christ? Because that's what draws us together. Or does it kind of make me special that I, I've got this insight over here and everybody else is wrong? That, that's not promoting love. Is it new? Is it true? Is it loving? Because as Paul says, you need to address, Timothy, these false doctrines. He says, verse 5, the goal of this command is love, which comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Heavenly Father, we want to come before you with a humility before your word to realize that this book we hold is different than any. It's not a set of opinions. It is your word, and it is there to teach our heart, our spirit. It's to mark us off as different from the entire world and all those ideas that are battled and argued about. So, Lord, give us a humility before your word to say, what are you saying to me? And to realize that who you are, that you are the God of our salvation, the God of our hope, the creator, our, 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 our loving and yet carefully accountable judge. And may we bring ourselves before your word with clarity and then with harmony with one another. In Jesus' name, amen.